Hello, you're listening to Things of Interest. I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Sophia Franks. And today we're going to get sciencey. We're going to talk about CRISPR. Now, for those of you who don't know, CRISPR, if I understand this, please correct me, Sophia. <laughs> CRISPR is a thing in molecular biology, it's a bunch of edits in our, well not necessarily our, in any genome, which is kind of incredible, really, because uh, it means that instead of guessing mutations, or I'm not actually sure like how we do genetic biology right now, but it means that with this new technique, with this new tool, we can program it in such a way that we can get it to cut specific places along the genome and actually edit specific genes which is amazing and I was thinking because we have our resident biologist here we could ask some questions get to know about this technology a little more um, get to know about how amazing biology is <laughs> in general and then we could move on to some more ethical discussions around the ramifications and what this means for not only what we do in our lifetimes but human evolution in general yeah that sounds great um yeah want me to start with a brief overview of CRISPR yes please so basically um bacteria exists which is probably a very good place to start bacteria mm -hmm. are little bugs that can give you diseases and so there are a couple of different types of things that can cause you to have diseases and one is bacteria and the other one is viruses you take Antibiotics for a bacteria, antibiotics don't do anything for a virus. So if you go to the doctor with a cold and you're like, I have the flu, the cold or a flu, both are typically viruses and the doctor doesn't give you antibiotics, that's why. It's because it's a virus and we can't do anything about that. But viruses infect everything. So they can infect us, they can infect like plants, they are mangoes, they can infect all kinds of animals and they also infect bacteria. And they typically do this by putting their genomes inside the bacteria. And bacteria have evolved to deal with this by creating a particular enzyme, which we're calling CRISPR, that cuts the virus's DNA up. And some researchers, so Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, sort of looked into this because they thought, you know, this is weird. How is the bacteria cutting up the virus DNA and not just absolutely shredding its own genome? And it turns out it does that by targeting very specific sequences. Uh, around the same time, a different group of researchers at MIT, led by Feng Zhang, was looking into whether that particular technique uh, could be harnessed to start editing human cells. So it works fine in bacterial cells, but bacteria and humans are pretty different. Um, bacteria belong to a class called prokaryotes, which are quite different internally from what we are. We belong to a class called eukaryotes, as do plants and a lot of the organisms you'll be familiar with. And so establishing that this technique could be used on, you know, eukaryotes is really, really important because otherwise, like, okay, cool, we can, like, sniff up viruses and bacteria, but whatever, we don't really care about them that much. Obviously quite important with increasing antibiotic resistance. I don't want to throw shade on anyone else's field. Uh, <laughs> And so sort of around the same time, in I believe 2012-ish, both groups published in quite quick succession evidence not only that this works, that it's very specific, that there's sort of like you know minimal off-target effects, but also that it can work in eukaryotic cells, that this can work in human cells. And this is huge, because previously, in order to sort of generate knockouts in human cells, there's a lot more steps you have to go through. You either have to find someone who has a genetic disease, which means they already have like a broken protein or a broken gene, 
and often people with severe diseases tend to die. And so, like, it can be really tough to get permission to grow those cells. It can be really difficult to have someone who has a closely genomic matched cell line. And honestly, like, I work on ch- uh, childhood disorders, and it can be really traumatic for families to say to them, hey, like, your child has recently died, but we really quickly need to get cell samples of them. So being able to create knockouts is really, really important and good. And sort of previously, it's like either you have a living human or a recently deceased human example of that, or you have to spend like maybe a year, maybe longer creating a knockout line. What is a knockout? It's a line that doesn't have a particular gene in it. So essentially the gene might not be there entirely, or there might've been a mutation induced that means that the gene can't be turned into protein. Proteins are everything that makes up your body, essentially. (laughs) So, like, really good examples are your hair and your fingernails made out of protein, but really so are your muscles and your bones and everything else. Your genes encode that. And so if there's a mistake in the encoding, then that can disrupt turning the gene into a protein, and that means that no protein is created. And while I call myself a geneticist, really, I only care about proteins. (laughs) The gene itself, as long as it's broken, I don't really care what else is going on. Hmm. The other really cool thing is that in science, we tend to use mice a lot. Mice are similar enough to people that we can sort of get really good tests, particularly for treatment trials. Mice are really, really key in those studies because you don't want to, again, like childhood diseases particularly, but any kind of disease that humans suffer from, be like, hey, this might kill your liver we don't know whereas if we Mm. test things in mice first we can generally get a pretty good idea of whether like a treatment firstly is likely to work but secondly causes like hepatomegaly so your liver to grow really big has some kind of toxic effect on the liver or the spleen or the heart or anything else what CRISPR can do and what CRISPR has been used to do uh, in a couple of labs, although not a whole heap to like have really conclusive sort of results on how successful this will be, is used to generate knockout mice. A process which previously took, again, years, can be done in a matter of months now. And that's such a big difference. Hmm. It's incredible to me that like what genetic biology really is, is just a bunch of molecules and proteins and enzymes essentially like knocking into each other and when they knock into each other in the right way they like do a thing yeah and that's our entire body our entire ecosystem is just run off of that yeah oh human bodies and like life itself are kept together with duct tape and string for the most part really it's amazing it's incredible and here we are like talking to each other and just you know chilling out while our body's doing this incredibly complex information encoding decoding storage repair yeah i mean the other thing to remember as well right is like there's not just one gene for everything your body needs to make in some cases Mm -hmm. there are and that's why if there's like one mutation in a gene so like the dystrophin gene in duchenne muscular dystrophy one mutation in that gene kind of kicks off that whole disease but for a lot of our genes like there's um redundancy Mm. so you know if one gene sort of goes down there's another one there's another protein that can kind of pick up the slack which is you know Nice. It's reassuring. I see a lot of similarities between um, how information is encoded in biology and how humans try and encode information just in our hard drives. Like with the whole redundancy, with error correction, we have to do a lot of things like assume that bits of information will get corrupted. Yeah. Well, it's a logical way to run it, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. 
it's kind of nice that when we're trying to create robots, and certainly now we can take a lot of inspiration from what the biological sciences have discovered, and there are sort of like mm. some overlaps where people are trying to figure out how to encode information in DNA, which is wild. Mm. That's because it's quite a good way to encode information, which is how humans got so kind of big and complex, right? Like we're not just mm. very large amoebas, we're complicated and the reason we can be complicated is because of this redundancy the kind of error checking that goes into place in our genomes and the ability for different cell types to produce different proteins right like you don't want your heart to start growing hair and the way it does that is just this incredible complexity of our genome where like some genes there's a thing called epigenetics which is mm -hmm. essentially how your genes are packaged. Basically, if the DNA is like coiled up really tightly, it's hard to get into that and you can't really get proteins, like get the information to encode proteins out of that. And in different cell types, you have different epigenetic markers, which basically means all the genes that the cell doesn't need are packaged away really closely. So in your heart, all the genes for making everything that aren't required to be a cardiomyocyte are packaged away really tightly. And that's really cool and useful. But does that mean that we've got uh, genes that express a lot of different characteristics and the stuff that isn't needed for that particular organ is just packaged differently? Mm, sort of. Mm -hmm. That's actually a very good question. And it's something that I've worked on a little bit as well. To use a gene, there have to be a couple of different elements sort of in place being connected to protein. So there's a thing called a promoter, which is basically mm -hmm. like where the gene transcription, so turning it into a protein, starts. And there's also enhancer elements, which sort of help fold the DNA so that the gene is more likely to be turned into protein. You can have different promoters that are connected with different enhancers for different tissue types. So mm -hmm. one of the genes I worked on during my honours year has slightly different promoters for when it's turned on in brain tissue as to when it's turned on in like your stomach muscle. And we could find this out because mutations in slightly different places in the gene cause either a neurological disease or a disorder of, you know, like your stomach and intestine development. It's really cool, like particularly as a medical researcher, yeah. that like diseases can give us this incredible insight into gene function. And while it's also kind of difficult to look at that research and be like, but this doesn't help the people with these diseases it is sort of mm. a step on the way and like really um elucidating how genes work and how genes and disease particularly work uh really helps us figure out where we want to go for treatments yeah it's kind of like fundamental research you have to understand what you're looking at first before you can fix what you're looking at yeah but it's tough as a medical researcher because you just want to fix things yeah yeah it's it's real people with real lives and real problems it's and often whole families yeah. with really serious problems. That was um another thing that I wanted to ask um, when you were mentioning like observing these things, because from my perspective in physics, the things that you measure, the systems that you measure in physics are incredibly simple compared <laughs> to biology, like many, many orders of magnitude simpler because they're literally, we model them as points with masses and velocities, right? Like, <laughs> That's how simple they are. And we can derive their trajectories from initial states and then from final states. Easy. But when it comes to biology and you've got all these complex molecules interacting with each other, all these different enzymes and proteins, what I always wondered is how you measure them. I keep hearing about all these really complex processes that happen. And my first thought is, how do we know this? How do we derive <laughs> oh, these processes? Oh, no, that's a complicated question. For some of it, it's through human disease. 
like before we sort of developed the techniques and tools that we have, human disease gave us an insight into what processes messed up. So for example, um, phenylketonuria. So you might see on packets sometimes that it'll say contains phenylalanine under yeah. like all the kind of allergy information and that'll be in bold. And that's because there's a group of people who have a disease called phenylketonuria, which means they don't have the enzyme they need at a particular stage in the digestion of that. It's an amino acid, so of that um, amino acid. And that means they get a buildup of a really toxic byproduct in their brain and get epilepsy and often um, uh, slower growth and slower learning and learning disabilities. And a researcher figured this out because when these kids avoided certain foods, they didn't get sick. And so you can Hmm. kind of infer from that. It's like, okay, so there's something in these foods that's making them sick, but these foods don't make anyone else sick. So it's probably something in their genome. For a lot of things, it's really complicated. We have some incredible techniques and abilities right now. So um, there is a whole field called proteomics where you can squish up cells. And I don't totally understand this, but you put them in a machine Mm-hmm. And the machine tells you how much of each protein there is there. I work much more at the kind of targeted, I'm looking at one or two proteins mm. or one or two genes kind of end of things. I've had some colleagues who very much work at the proteomics level where proteins get tagged. I'm not entirely sure how it works, wow. but it seems to. And they know how much <laughs> of everything there is there and how much that varies from other different different cell lines. Because one of the cool things about proteins is they've all got different shapes. And again, might be slightly wrong here, very much not my area. I don't like numbers bigger than 10, really. You can look at them and see that they're different on sort of a microscopic level or how they scatter light. And so in proteomics or spectrophotometers, you can kind of figure out what's there. And because we as people have been able to figure that out, We've built computer programs that do it for us. Yes. (laughs) And that's really useful. (laughs) Um, The sort of end that I work on, I work on uh, messing up cells and getting the DNA out of them and then Mm -hmm. sequencing that DNA, which I can go into more detail if you like, but it's super boring. Um, (laughs) Or I'll squish up the cells and I'll take the protein out of them and then I will run the protein on a gel. So we use gels a lot in science. They typically have some kind of matrix within them that means proteins separate by charge or size. And then you use antibodies that have been specifically created to react or bind to that protein. So the way those are sort of developed is you inject a rabbit or a mouse or a goat are typically the main ones with that protein because it's a human protein. Their immune system generates antibodies from them. You then take some blood from that animal and you know, harvest those antibodies. That's amazing. And we use that to detect where proteins are and what they're doing. The other thing I've worked on a little bit is looking at uh, how cell lines breathe, essentially. And again, like there are machines for that is the most basic answer to your question. Mm. But again, a lot of it is light. So Mm -hmm. essentially when I'm looking at how much cells breathe, I put them into a machine that shoots lasers at the cells and the amount of oxygen there changes how those lasers read back to the machine and it tells mm-hmm. me how much oxygen those cells are breathing. Cool. Oh, I understand that part. Physics, yeah. Yeah, there's a surprising <laughs> amount of lasers in biology. Yeah, I guess you'd have to, because you're working on things at the molecular level, so if you want to understand which molecules are there, which atoms are there, then light a spectroscopy would be the way to do mm. it without like interfering with them too much. That's really cool to me. I know I'm like asking really deep detail questions, but this is incredible, absolutely incredible to me that 
Yeah, like, I don't. I don't work with big data very much, so I can't tell you too much about like proteomics or RNA stuff. But I do understand cell mm. and human tissue kind of experiments. It's mm. amazing. Do you want to go back to talking about CRISPR? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> there's like there's a we're, we're building a pyramid of knowledge. Mm. So now you'll understand how all biology works. <laughs> we can go back to talking about CRISPR. Awesome. <laughs> I can just tell you how I've used mm-hmm. it. I use CRISPR during my PhD. I hate it, but I understand its value as a technique. Mm. Please elaborate. <laughs> um, essentially, the way we use CRISPR is uh, there's going to be a lot of explanation to get to the good bit. Bacteria don't have just one genome. They can like carry extra genomes. And so we put the genes encoding the enzyme that's used for CRISPR to like snip genomes mm. with. We put that into an extra genome for a bacteria and we put it inside a bacteria. Bacteria grow really well. They're super useful tools in biology. Mm-hmm. You can just like put more genes inside them and they won't use them. Huh. And they'll grow and you'll get the gene out and you'll be like, cool. So they're like a storage replication tool. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're not perfect. I cannot remember off the top of my head the sort of rate of error that you see in bacteria typically. Probably like one in 10,000. But they're pretty good. Hmm. <laughs> They'll do, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and because you use so many copies of that to sequence or to generate DNA with, generally, like, one out of 10,000 doesn't matter that much because you have the other mm. 9,999. Uh, so we put the gene encoding the enzyme used for CRISPR there. So an enzyme is a protein that does stuff. So some proteins just sit there and, like, are structural, so, like, hair and fingernails but some proteins do stuff they're really useful they're called enzymes and the CRISPR enzyme snips DNA really good but it snips it specifically so we also have to put a guide into there and the guide is just 16 to 20 base pair long like you know ACTG TGTG whatever Um, and that tells the enzyme exactly where to cut Mm -hmm. In some genomes, really easy to do. In the human genome, you have to, like, do a bunch of research and double-check it's not repeated anywhere else because we've got, like, what, three billion base pairs of mm. DNA. Don't want to cut in the wrong place. Yeah, but, like, um, what's 16 factorial? Oh, my God. It's a real big number. Uh, let's see. Million, billion, 20 trillion, 900 billion-ish. Yeah, I got 2.09 times 10 to the 13. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's the one. <laughs> Human DNA sequences obviously aren't random. That's just the random thing you'd expect. And you also have to remember that base four, we're working in base four. Ah, yes. um, Because there's only four different human bases. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's unlikely, but you still have to sort of do your due diligence. And sometimes if there's like one or two bases that are mismatched, it'll cut there as well. Those are what we call off-target effects. Mm -hmm. And they're a big concern for using CRISPR in human therapeutic purposes because that could cause cancer. Mm. Basically, if you snip... um, We have some genes that people call, like, anti-tumor genes. They stop us from just having cancer everywhere, and if CRISPR breaks those, that would be quite Mm. bad. What I did was I got the um, genetic material encoding that enzyme and that sequence, put it in bacteria, grew it up, got it out of bacteria, sequenced it to double-check it was correct, and then I electroporated some human stem cells. What is electroporated? Stem cells is more important, okay. I think. So I'm going to explain okay, that one cool. first, and then I'll get back to electroporated. Sure. <laughs> stem cells are cells that can turn into anything. You can have induced pluripotent stem cells, which are when you take some skin from someone and turn them back into cells that can turn into anything, which means you can be like, I had skin, and now I have liver. 
That's really mm. useful because it means we don't have to take a liver biopsy. Good stuff. Wow. Human embryonic stem cells are provided by typically by a company. Often they're very old. So I was working on the H9 stem cell line, which was developed back in 1998. So it's an embryonic stem cell line derived from a human embryonic blastocyst. So blastocyst is the very early stage where you can't even see it, have, often have no idea it's there. In 1998, this lab was given permission to create a stem cell line from it, and now it's one of the standard stem cell lines we use. Electroporation is when you shock cells, mm-hmm. so they open all their pores. Gross. <laughs> so cells need to get things inside mm-hmm. and out of them because they need to eat, they need to mm. exude things. When you give them an electrical shock, they'll go... <gasps> and open everything, <laughs> and you can, like, get DNA inside of them. There are a couple of other ways to get things inside cells. So there can be, like, chemical operation for bacterial cells. We'll often just, like, put them in ice and then heat them up, mm. and that'll do it for them. But electroporation is a pretty standard way to get DNA inside human cells. I then let them grow for a bit. Just go, I'm so sorry, <laughs> I electrocuted you. Please have some food. And I put them in the, the nice um, incubator because... Humans keep a pretty good temperature of 37 Mm -hmm. degrees-ish. So we try to keep human cells at around that temperature. I grow them for two days and then I run them through a fluorescent activated cell sorting machine because the sort of set of DNA that we used to put this um, enzyme inside human cells also contains a reporter gene. And reporter genes are just like genes that tell you that things are there. We use one called GFP, which stands for green fluorescent protein. There's also YFP yellow which is the yellow one (laughs) yeah and there's other ones that aren't all called like whatever fp but we use gfp so if any of the cells are green we know that they have that genome inside of them that's fucking magical (laughs) yeah it's really cool uh so they get single cell sorted onto a bed of mouse embryonic fibroblasts you can grow stem cells sort of on or off mouse embryonic fibroblasts but when they're on them the mefs kind of like support the cell they excrete some things and they make the cells grow better (laughs) and make them less likely to die and then you generally wait like two weeks sometimes three weeks and you have a visible colony of stem cells hopefully that has mutations in that gene generally about a month after that you'll sequence the dna to make sure that they actually look like they have a knockout because sometimes it can cut in slightly the wrong place Mm -hmm. and if you're aiming to delete like the very beginning of a gene and it deletes like 20 base pairs upstream that's that's no good for you So my PhD, as I think we've discussed a little bit before, is on disorders of energy generation, Mm -hmm. so mitochondrial disorders. Uh, So I was looking at two genes involved in those. So I targeted specifically to those genes, sequenced the DNA, checked, like looked at the proteins, checked that they either wasn't protein or the protein was weird. Mm -hmm. So I had a cell line that produced like shorter protein that didn't go into the mitochondria properly. Very, very frustrating cell line to work with, but eventually I got there. And then we also check that the cell lines have the normal amount of chromosomes. Because if you have too many chromosomes as a stem cell, you'll behave differently, understandably. Mm-hmm. Particularly when you're looking at diseases of energy generation. Like if I was looking at cell skeleton things, so like the structure of cells or production of fatty acids like I just I would not care Mm. about the amount of chromosomes because you either do or you don't make fatty acids you either have a good skeleton or you don't but when it comes to the mitochondria because like there's so many genes involved you want to have a very human-like cell line right that's what I did that's so freaking cool did you hate CRISPR because it was um like a faff to work with or 
So I hated it because it killed my cells a lot. Uh. <laughs> so the genes I was working on, I was working on probably the more severe end. We had like a scope of around, I think, 30 genes we were interested in working out mm. and generating knockouts in CRISPR. And this is sort of move forward and do treatment investigations. Mm. Um, they're a really powerful tool for that. Colleagues of mine are now working on like the other ones and they've had really successful knockouts. But I was looking at the two that were probably the most severe phenotypes associated. So when those genes are broken you have like neonatal fatality so kids will live for like maybe a couple of weeks mm. and the other one typically the kids will die by around the age of three like very severe diseases mm. turns out stem cells are a little bit more fussy than just like embryos so yeah. generally the line you take is if it's survivable until birth like can probably be knocked out in stem cells i am here to say that's a lie. If it's severe, the stem cells will die. <laughs> right. Um, so I had a lot of difficulties where I was trying to knock out genes and just going again and again and again and again, and the cells were just dying. Like, they were so unhappy when they grew. They would grow very slowly. Mm-hmm. I have, like, some really nice genetic knockouts from, like, an abstract point of view, mm. but you grow them, and they're just like, mm, what if I didn't divide today? What if that never happened? So it's it's very frustrating, and I think one of the reasons I hated CRISPR was it took me, like, 14 months to develop a cell line. Mm. <sighs> this is a long term. That's interesting, though, because it's, like, it's kind of like a self-defense mechanism where there's a recognition of, you know, something's wrong in the code and therefore self-destruct. That's typically why apoptosis occurs is there's a bunch of kind of different signals that can be triggered. So apoptosis is controlled cell death. Bunch of signals that can be triggered. And again, this is like, while a lot of humans get cancer, we don't all have cancer. And it's because sometimes there'll be areas in the code that just start triggering these cell death mechanisms. And that's a way of like defending the whole organism rather than just paying attention to the cell itself growing. Uh, and so, I mean, like, that's what I think was happening with these cell lines. It's also a question of, like, experience and the technique. Once you've figured out how to work CRISPR for either the gene type or the cell type or the whatever you're working with, it'll just go. Mm-hmm. So, like, I spent something like 14 months working on my first one. And I got the second one within, like, a couple, maybe two months from electroporation to, like, confirmation of knockout. Like, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, I'm furious about that. But again, like, my colleagues can kind of, like, just bust them through really quickly because we now have experience with that. And it's just, like, that learning curve is so steep. And I see so many talks from people being like, oh, CRISPR's so easy, a child could do it. And it's like, well, no. Like, the child would have the very, very steep learning curve and they would cry a lot. Just, like, a lot, a lot. I have cried so much about CRISPR in my PhD. And then they'd probably be okay at it, mm. right? Like, I think it's just there's such a gap of knowledge between someone who has never done CRISPR before and someone who's done it even twice successfully. That's a step that isn't really acknowledged in the way we talk about CRISPR and, like, scientific research circles mm. and the way it's discussed when, say, talking to a new student and saying, why don't you do CRISPR? Yeah, because it's still quite a young field, isn't it? It's quite a young technique. Yeah. It is, like, five years old. It is wild. Yeah. And in five years, you're already, oh my gosh, I remember hearing someone say, talking about people, quote unquote, shooting up CRISPR, which I was Mm. very (laughs) confused by, because I'm not sure if it's a thing you can shoot up. Oh, 
Yeah, it kind of is. Our cells are pretty good at just, like, seeing DNA and being like, nom, 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 that's mine now. <laughs> you probably wouldn't want to, like, inject yourself with CRISPR. You'd probably want it to be encapsulated in some form, because otherwise you'd mount an immune response to that. Sorry, I'm just, like, thinking out loud a little bit. That's cool. We have There's a part of our immune response called toll-like receptors, and one of the things they recognise is, like, unencapsulated DNA, mm. and when they see it, they're like, and alert the immune system. Because it's probably viral? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Or a dead bacteria. Okay. So when bacteria pop rather than apoptose, so like if they eat too much or if they end up in a place where the water is more watery than they are, they'll pop. Uh, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining like comical sounds. Yeah, well, pretty much. Yeah. We can't hear anything at that level. It probably does sound like that. <laughs> Yeah, and so that would be a thing that activates the immune system. So you want it, like, within something, and you want it particularly to be within something so it gets targeted to the right cell type. Mm. Just because that's more efficient, not because anything bad would happen. Like, we're here for efficiency, not for shenanigans. (laughs) So, like, three-ish years ago, uh, there was a really beautiful scientific paper that came out of China where they'd used CRISPR on non-viable human embryos. So... I think they got them as um, they were being rejected from an IVF clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people had gone like, well, we're not going to use these embryos because they have too many chromosomes or wouldn't right. survive for whatever reason. Mm. They can be used for scientific research. And so this lab had used those embryos to see whether CRISPR could be used to treat, I think it was a type of hemophilia. I've actually like written an article about this, so I should know Wait, about was... this more. <laughs> I read something about a Chinese lab trying to snip the AIDS virus? Was that a different... That was a different, different lab, lab. but okay. I do know the one you're talking about. This was, like, the first one where everyone was like, CRISPR could be evil! <laughs> um, so it's kind of like the beginning of this whole ethical CRISPR story. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get on to the bit why it pisses me off. The response to this pisses me off in a second. Mm-hmm. This lab... So first of all, this lab did, like, everything they needed to ethically. Like, I read sort of, like, some of the articles about it where everyone's like, oh, ethical oversight. But then I went and I read the actual paper mm-hmm. where they, like... They did good. Like, the main issue was that when they went to use CRISPR in these human embryos to try and correct this hemophilia gene, there were so many off-target effects that they would not have expected from any of their experiments in human cell lines. So they did the experiments in human cell lines. They mm. did experiments, I think, in mice as well. And they go to human embryos and we're stu- we suddenly see, like, off-target effects that weren't expected and could some of them could be quite dangerous. Mm. And so because... The results of this were bad and could have been dangerous. White media, like US media essentially mm. just goes, huge ethical oversight, what else did we expect from China, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But that's the conclusion of the study. And then like a couple of months later, there's a lab in the US that uses CRISPR to edit viable human embryos. In my opinion, that lab also doesn't do their ethical due diligence. I mean, I have issues with a lot of research that's come out of America. It was a US lab that like did those experiments where they sew two mice together. And they're like, turns out when you sew a young mouse to an old mouse, the old mouse gets fitter and like is happier. You know, all those weird youth blood things. Uh, have I told you about these? I have read that Peter Thiel wants to drink my blood. That's about as much as I've read. <laughs> yeah, so the experiments behind this were done in the US and I've like read papers associated with it and just the entire time had this look of horror in my face it does sound like a horror movie plot sewing two mice together that sounds like a non-scientist wrote that 
I'm just like opening my articles on this, yeah. so I don't say things that I haven't written before. Okay, so this US lab that did like CRISPR experiments on viable human embryos, there was a self-imposed mon- moratorium on researchers because these experiments in um it was a guy called Huang's lab. The scientific field read them and was like probably moderately racist in their response to it because they're kind of weird. Research is so Western centric right like Mm -hmm. and it just it infuriates me there's incredible research coming out of south america like Mm -hmm. there's some incredible research coming out of china and japan particularly like and so to see this and be like oh what ethics uh approval is just so wild to me Mm -hmm. but after this it meant everyone was like okay we're not going to use crispr on human embryos like this is this is really important that we kind of move forward in this i'm going to apologize right now that this is like so scattered as an explanation but it is because i just don't want to get facts wrong like Mm. not only is that kind of rude to the researchers it's also like this is a happening field this is these are things that it matters to get right the research in viable human embryos in the u.s was ran by shukrats metalipov and they've reported i can't remember if I've read the paper. It was possibly during, like, the dark days of my PhD. But they've reported that they don't have problems with off-target editing or incomplete editing. But the response to that differed so wildly to the response to the research in with the Chinese group, with Huang's group. I was just, like, I was furious. Like, people responded to the news that Metalipov's group did this, and they're like, so great that he did it, just really moving the field forward. Oh my gosh, mm. like, this is incredible. Whereas, like, when the Chinese group did it, it's like, oh yeah, of course this happened in China. Like, this is so unethical. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it just makes me really frustrated that the way we're responding to really important scientific research is so shaped by our opinions of the countries yeah. and of the races of the people doing them. Yeah, It's detrimental to science itself. And, I mean, we also had... Quite recently, there was – so mitochondrial transfer is when you give egg cells sort of healthy mitochondria. So this can happen because mitochondria kind of have their own genome, but mm. some of their genes are in, like, the main genome. And so if your mitochondria has a bad genome, you just give someone new mitochondria, mitochondrial transfer. Uh, this has been approved in the UK. Mm-hmm. It has not been approved in the US. Uh, there's, like, an approved research centre in the UK, and I've met some of the people working on it. Like, they're absolutely fab really sort of moving forward in a really responsible and ethical manner to make sure that, you know, healthy babies are born, yep. <laughs> um, which is pretty key because, mm-hmm. like, it's such a potentially powerful technology. You don't want to, like, fuck it up yeah. by not doing, like, again, your ethical due diligence, your scientific due diligence for the good of the resultant child. And this researcher in the US just, like, went to Mexico and did it. And then reported that the first baby from mitochondrial transfer had been born and sort of said, like, well, this is so important. I think it's okay that I should go to Mexico. Like, yeah, I'll go to Mexico again in a heartbeat to do this. And it's just like, there are reasons we have these restrictions in place. And they can seem really heartless to people suffering from a disease. So, like, this has been, like, a plot point in house, I'm sure, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that people have types of cancer and so they just, like, piss off to Europe to get, like, into a trial or they lie to get onto a scientific trial to try and get access to drugs that might work. And I I understand and I sympathise with that. But when the researchers themselves undermine the very research principles that, like, 
we're meant to uphold it. And yeah, like we never sign anything being like, we're not going to be like ethically shitty. Maybe we should. Oh yeah. I mean, almost definitely. <laughs> it's just so infuriating to see a research leader undermining essentially the scientific equivalent of the Hippocratic Oath, yeah. right? Oh, oh. Yeah. yeah. I'm good. Yeah. Like doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, but why don't scientists, why don't researchers, why don't programmers, like why don't I have to take it? I feel like I should have to take it. I mean, in my new job, I, I do have to do an e-learning module about being ethical, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, I, like, we have we have a lot of learning modules about, like, why fraud is bad and what fraud is and don't do fraud, it's bad, um, which is important extremely when you're at a financial institution. But, like, especially in the wider tech community and even in the academic community there isn't a thing like the Hippocratic Oath where everyone understands their influence and they understand the consequences of their actions. I mean we get pretty regular talks about research ethics so looking more at the like do not commit fraud in the research you're trying to get published Mm. end of things. I think when it comes to a research head, this guy, like, led a lab and was just like, oh, I'm just going to go to Mexico and do it. Okay, cool, dude. You've definitely figured out what is ethical by now. Mm. And you are choosing not to pay attention to it. Do you want to hear a nice Christmas story? (laughs) Or at least a cute one? Sure. (laughs) Not just one I'm angry about. (laughs) So this happened back in 2016. Mm Mm-hmm. In Europe, if you're doing gene editing to add stuff in, you have to, like, get a lot of permission and sort of jump through a lot of hoops. But if you're cutting things out, it's more okay. And for plant research, because no one really cares about plants, like, you can just cut stuff out of plants. Sure. And so there was a Swedish plant scientist called Stefan Janssen. I think that's how you say Swedish names. You're doing great. Who modified cabbage using CRISPR grew it in his backyard, Mm -hmm. and then ate a pasta dish that included 300 grams of cabbage that he grew from the seeds that had been genetically modified. How's he doing? I'm so so proud of him. He ate it with a um, Gustav Claren who hosts like a Radio Sweden gardening show, and he said, to our delight and to some extent my surprise, the meal turned out really nice. (laughs) That's adorable, though. It makes me so happy. Mm. He refers to it as uh, a crispery, <laughs> yeah, meal. It's very cute, and he like on his blog he includes a recipe for pasta with crispery cabbage. <laughs> I can't see exactly what he edited. Kind of been too bad. It's still kicking. I think if he was planning on eating it, probably would have been quite sensible. Yeah, it's tagliatelle with crispy fried vegetables. And one of the ingredients is 300 grams of crisper edited, crisper genome edited cabbage flowers in young leaves can be replaced by broccoli or similar. <laughs> I appreciate that substitution. Yeah, that's quite a nice thing. I think that's very, very cute. Mm. That um, he sort of just went and did it and then ate it. <laughs> the ethical concerns that I've heard a lot about CRISPR is how, because it's so programmable and so, well, supposedly flexible to edit whatever part of a genome we want, um, that we could start editing parts of the germline and that could then get passed down through different generations of plants, animals, or even humans, and how that could affect the evolution of um, species. 
Yeah, so I mean, like, that's a concern with any gene editing technology, and obviously with CRISPR, because it's so relatively Mm. straightforward. I'm not going to say it's straightforward. (laughs) (laughs) Relatively straightforward. Like, that's a concern as well. I think, like, the most helpful thing is how incredibly illegal it is to do that. Mm. (laughs) There's, like, very, very harsh rules against um, genome editing without sort of being within uh, Office of the Gene Transfer Regulation, whatever. In Australia and New Zealand, certainly. I think in other countries it's sort of similar high standards. So it's like even if you don't know you're performing gene editing, mm. like you can still go to jail for a minimum of five years just for doing stuff on plants. Interesting. Which is wild. But I think that is it's quite good to have those incredibly harsh penalties because it means people are less inclined to just like mess things up. When it comes to sort of scientific research and fixing genes, I think we sort of need to look at it with what people can realistically consent to for their future generations, right? So you look at something like Huntington's disease, which would be very difficult to fix by CRISPR, but, like, if say we could fix Huntington's, but in doing so, all of your children would not have Huntington's disease. Like, that is objectively a good thing, right? <laughs> I think generally when it comes to adults consenting to having gene editing or gene therapy in any kind of way, those are often very targeted to particular cell types. Mm. So you have a problem in your liver or, for example. So there's a group in the US that's looking at targeting the liver to decrease the risk of heart disease because the liver controls the amount of cholesterol you have and that impacts how you have heart disease. They would only target CRISPR to the liver, both because, like, it's much more Mm. efficient, like, it's cheaper by a really long way to do it like that, but also to avoid this issue of potentially editing the germline. There's always a risk with any kind of gene editing thing, but there's also a risk, like, you know, whenever you do anything that might affect your germline, right? Like, there are a lot of a lot of different kinds of ionizing radiation that can alter your germline. Like, so that's always going to sort of be a risk in our lives. The question is whether that risk is effectively mitigated. Mm. And I think by the time that CRISPR gets to the market, I genuinely think it will be. Particularly in Australia and New Zealand, I'm a little bit doubtful of how the US functions. I don't think it functions well. Mm-hmm. Fair. <laughs> But I think, like, often that kind of, like, fear of genetic technologies in the US, like, as much as I dislike this pushback against GMO plants, I think it will essentially protect people from cowboy researchers Mm. who just want to, you know, shoot CRISPR everywhere. (laughs) And that means that we will essentially have to have these checks and balances that mean it will be safe. I hope so, anyway. I'm sure we will. When it comes to editing the germline like IVF to an extent so not just in vitro fertilization but um pre-implantation genetic Mm. diagnosis so for people who know they carry particular genes or have a really high likelihood of having a kid with a particular disease particularly childhood diseases but some like late onset diseases such as Huntington's can be covered by this you can say like I don't want to have a child with this disease and often like that's Fine. So in Australia, you can do negative to the selection, which is like, I do not want this child who has a debilitating childhood disease, mm. please. So for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, mm. for example, like that's fine. But that means that they're never going to have children with those diseases that you've selected against everything else that's carried on that section of the genome. And I don't think anyone thinks that's an ethical like dilemma because people are suffering yeah. less. And so I think if we just look at it in that framework, the fact that we've already kind of accepted a little bit of going like, well, we'll change our evolution a bit. It's fine, Mm. I guess. That's kind of okay. It's just 
we have an idea of where the limits are, but I think with Christopher we'll have to start drawing those lines quite definitively. Yeah. I'm learning so much this episode. Thank you so much. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, there's, there's still like fascinating research coming out on this weekly. So last week, week mm-hmm. before, there was a piece in Nature about it. I get the weekly emails still. I'm never going to mm-hmm. stop. So, for example, this heart research, which is being done sort of looking at editing the liver to change risks of heart disease, and that's all being done at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia or University of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, one of the two, is being led by Kieran Misanuru. And they've sort of like looked at this in mouse liver and they can see this being used in human disease as well. And it's all very promising and good. Like this came out on the 7th of March, right? Like we're still finding so many different important and good ways we can start using CRISPR in the future. I know a lot less about um, agricultural research because I don't care about plants, <laughs> But, like, I know that they're also making huge leaps and bounds using this technology. I know there are a bunch of businesses that have been founded. So Editas, which who's been sort of founded by Feng Zhang. There have been businesses founded by Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier as well. And, I mean, not only does this mean they have, like, a significant commercial interest in, like, CRISPR being really popular and good, but also that they see that there is potential for this to be a medical business. That the interest in this is going to be so huge they want to be treating disease in humans. So Editas is looking at using CRISPR to treat a rare form of blindness and they wanted to treat it by 2017. And I don't know if that happened. I feel like I would have read about it if it did. But I mean, with all of this, like you expect to have setbacks, right? But that's the kind of time frame these people are working on is they're looking at in the next couple of years, treating humans for blindness. And like blindness is really easy relatively for CRISPR treatments in humans you just put stuff in the eyes and it stays there more complicated diseases so neurological diseases so things that you want to treat by affecting the liver they're going to need more targeting they're going to be a little bit more complicated and might take a little bit longer but we are like we will be seeing CRISPR at least being attempted to be used for therapeutic purposes very soon I think that's amazing it just it was wild when you said um, blindness is like relatively easier to treat. <laughs> it's like, wow. It's more like it's less likely to, when you get injected mm. by stuff, that ends up all over your body thanks to the really cool effect, efficiency blood. of your Yay. blood system. But if you put things in your cornea, they just like hang out in your cornea. They're fine. Ah, uh, yes. The floaters that will never go away. They live there yep, forever now. They're a part of me. They're a part of my world. I think that's a really lovely note to end on. I think this is just an episode of like me asking questions and being generally amazed while you skim through like literally what decades worth of research about this amazing new technology. Well, you've been listening to Things of Interest. We've been talking about CRISPR and all of its amazing detailed processes. Um, We've talked a lot about the recent advances and the research that's gone on. We've talked a little around the ethical considerations around gene editing. It's been really fascinating for me. I hope I hope it's been fascinating for you, people who are listening. I hope we didn't go too nerdy and sciencey, but also I don't care. <laughs> like I love this shit. This is amazing. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode. Or if you didn't, please send us some feedback. Let us know what you think. You can email us at 
castinginterest at gmail.com. We're on Twitter uh, at castinginterest, and you can find us on the Facebook as well. And if you get a chance, please do leave us some stars on the iTunes or your favourite podcast app. But anyway, until next time, I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Sophia France. And, and as always, stay interesting. Yay.